Well, for the last week, we have the last six weeks, we've been looking at the origin or the revelation of who God is and how all of creation came to be. As we work through these first two chapters of creation, we recognize several elements. And here's three things we recognize that God is all powerful, so much so that he can create everything from nothing. Second, that mankind is made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore we reflect his attributes in our own lives. And third, we as God's creation, man and woman together, are a complete creation and deemed by God as both blessed and very good. As we move into chapter 3, we're going to see how that perfection, that completeness, that bountiful blessing that was experienced by mankind changes in a moment. There's going to be a shift in tone. We've had six weeks of, whoa, isn't that amazing what God can do? To, wow, how quickly it can be destroyed. God has not made us robots as much as Eve would like that box to hold a robot version of me. He's not made us robots. He has given us free will. And so there is always a choice, a choice to trust or a choice to doubt, a choice to obey or a choice to disobey. Ultimately, there is always a choice when it comes to faith in Jesus. The great evangelist D.L. Moody is noted to have said this, One of two things you must do. You must either receive him or reject him. You receive him here and he will receive you there. You reject him here and he will reject you there. There is always a choice. And today we're going to look at how choices can either make us or indeed break us. So with all that said and uh, with a slightly ominous a tone in the air, let us head to the choices of Eve and Adam in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to just look at verse 1 for now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So God had given everything to Adam and Eve. They had a perfect garden to enjoy. They had purpose in their management of the garden and they had authority over all the animals and they had been complete together with one another. They became one flesh. They had everything they could ever want. Yet as we look at verse one, their loyalty to God was now going to be tested. And who brings this test? Well, it doesn't come from God. Rather, it comes from a serpent. I've noted down in my Bible in Genesis 3.1 that there is no introduction to the serpent. There's no, this is who he is or this is how he came to be. We're just told the serpent comes to speak. Now on the surface, this serpent comes from the animal kingdom. Yet this serpent is different for two reasons. The first is that the serpent is crafty. If we look at a purely English meaning of crafty, we understand it as being clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. Let me just repeat that, that crafty means being clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. No other beast of the field behaved in such a way as the craftiness of this serpent. But the second element is that this serpent speaks. Now, maybe you could argue that the animals in Eden at this time had speaking ability. 
For Eve wasn't surprised at a serpent coming to speak with her. However, I think it more plausible that in this situation, the serpent is unique. Consider Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The ancient serpent here in Revelation refers back to Genesis 3. This was no ordinary serpent, for it was possessed by the devil himself. And in this one statement, we bring a whole new dimension to our creation narrative. Where did the devil come from? Well, I don't have time to go into the two specific passages, but if you're writing notes down, you might want to consider Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 12. And when you take Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 12 together, we learn that angels were created some point between day one and day six of creation, likely more towards the beginning of creation. They ministered or their purpose was to bring glory to God. Now, there was a specific high-ranking angel called Lucifer, and his name means day star, and he sought to rise to the position of God. He deceived himself, thinking that he could be God. He envied the image and the likeness of God seen in Adam and Eve, and he was angered at being a created being rather than the eternal being that is God's. And so God, seeing this attitude, throws Lucifer and all those who joined this rank to the earth, for God wouldn't tolerate this form of rebellion. Which brings us full circle, back to the Garden of Eden and verse 1 of Genesis 3. Lucifer, now known as Satan, remains hidden. He is crafty. And he uses a serpent to bring about his ambition of defeating the creation of God and therefore rising up in the ranks himself. And how does Satan, through this serpent, bring the fight to God? What army does he wield? What weapons does he bring? What arsenal does he bring to this great war he's going to take to God? He brings a question. That's all he brings. That's all he needs. Yet notice the mocking tone. The question was simple, but it was dripping with the desire for evil. Just look at it again in verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This was the serpent. This was the devil. This is Satan bringing his war against God and his creation. And all he has to do is ask a question. The question is given to Eve. Maybe Adam was nearby. Maybe he wasn't. We don't know. We could say that Satan asked Eve, for the original command of God was given to Adam, so maybe Satan thought Eve would be easier to convince. Again, we don't know, and statements like that are simply speculative. The important aspect is to see what Satan does. Not why he does it, but what he actually does. The question is designed to cause doubt and dissatisfaction in God. The interesting and uh, introduction of this interesting word actually brings about a subtle attitude of questioning. You need to cast your mind back 
and think over the conversation. And as you do so, you begin to question what you remember. Did God actually say that? Well, let me think. What did God say? Oh, I'm struggling with my memory. I'm, I'm not sure what he said. The word actually is designed to bring doubt and dissatisfaction. If I can bring another example of this, if, if you're a parent with children and, you know, they send them to clean their bedrooms or whatever it may be, and they come down and you say, did you clean your bedrooms? Yes, yes, we cleaned our bedrooms. Really? And that really is designed to say, we doubt your answer. And our kids even understand the tone, don't they? They understand. Did you actually clean your bedroom? Oh, I've still got to make my bed. And off they go. Well, this is what Satan is doing here. Did God actually say this? And to take that doubt even deeper, Satan continues by another two subtle elements. And to really see this, we need to go back to chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17 and actually see the original command that God gave. So chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's go back to chapter 3 and verse 1. Satan does two things. He increases the rule and he completely overlooks the blessing. Okay, grasp this. He increases the rule and he overlooks the blessing. He increases the rule asking if God said they could not eat of any tree. Increasing it from the one tree to any tree. Second, he completely overlooks the bountiful blessing of the Garden of Eden and the many trees of fruit that were there for their pure joy and sustenance. You're not allowed to eat of any tree, increasing the rule, which completely ignores the blessing that in fact they can. Satan takes the command of God and moves it to complete legalism. There's no blessing in this question that comes from Satan. There's nothing good. And it starts with actually. And so in one subtle and simple question, Satan brings his entire war to the doorstep of God. Let's look at the response of Eve in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve engages with this serpent by correcting the premise of the question. Adam and Eve are, in fact, allowed to eat of any of the trees in the garden, except for one that God had specifically pointed out. And you might jump for joy. Satan's attempt has been thwarted just as it gets out the door. But we should not be too fast to come to such a conclusion because the doubts and the questions produced from serpents interaction with Eve have settled in our mind and the next statement shows the devastating reality of temptation. Eve increases the rule and decreases the punishment. Eve increases the rule and decreases the punishment. Do you see that she behaves in the same manner 
as the serpent, increasing and decreasing the words of God. We are made in the image of God. In his likeness, we are to reflect God. But with an interaction with the serpent, Eve now begins to reflect the serpent's doubting and accusational behaviors. She states that they're not allowed to touch the tree that God pointed out. Yet there's no record of God ever saying that. So Eve increases the rule. She also states that God said, you will die. Yet in the original command, God says they will surely die. A confident assertion of what would follow. Eve decreases the certainty of the death by simply removing a single word. You see, the serpent is indeed crafty. With a single question, he's managed to cause enough doubt and dissatisfaction for Eve to change the words of God. In Atkinson's commentary on Genesis, he quotes Thillich in saying this, Significantly, the Lord's Prayer teaches us the petition, Lead us not into temptation. Do not even allow us to get into the critical situation in the first place. Significantly, the petition does not read, lead us out of temptation once we are in it, but rather lead us not into temptation. Once we are near the tree, our pulse begins to stir, curiosity flares up, and passions are aroused. In such a situation, our ability to make decisions is paralyzed. With a simple little interaction with the kids, we showed that. As soon as we told them that they couldn't see what's inside the box, their faces lit up as their wildest dreams, dragons and robots and cats and food and whatever they could think, their dreams and their wildest imagination just began to flow. You see, when we open a conversation with the tempter, we are already in temptation. We're already so close to sinning that it's almost inevitable. Eve had engaged with the tempter, and she would soon forget the certainty of God's word. A pastor I know once said that there's a line drawn, and he used this in reference to relationship, but I think this can be referenced to anything, that there's a line drawn of where you cross the line at sin, and if you remain on this side of the line, that it's good, it's good things by God. And what we want to know as human beings is how close we can get to the line without stepping over it, to the point where we're teetering on its edge. And if you're asking how close I can get to sin without sinning, you're already going to sin because your mindset is engaging with the temptation. So for now, let us remind ourselves here today of the certainty of God's word. Revelation twenty-two eighteen. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, removing surely from die, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. There are no exceptions to these verses. God's word is God's word. It cannot be added to. It cannot be reduced. It is complete and perfect in its entirety. I, I rarely, rarely talk about translations from the platform, 
But one of the things I have to say here is the message translation has aimed to give us the word of God in a way that is more palatable and understandable in our society. But as it does that, it completely tears apart what it actually says. And so we have to come to the word of God and see in its entirety, it's perfect and it's pure. Why? Because Revelation 22 says, if we don't see it that way, we are destined to be apart from God for eternity. Well, let's return to our passage and read the response of Satan. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan, I believe here, is truly despicable. He actually corrects Eve using the words of God. You will not surely die. He corrects Eve. We forget this, don't we, that Satan is crafty. He completely contradicts God then in the next line, calling him a liar. Satan is confident now. He knows he has Eve in the palm of his hands. She's already started to doubt, and now he must drive the point home further. And so with confidence, he declares, you will not die. But then comes the punchline. If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. You will know all things, both good and bad. It's the very deception that Lucifer fell out of heaven because of, to be like God. Which we already know is not possible, but it brings a level of dissatisfaction, doesn't it? Why would I want to stay this lowly human, answerable to God, working the land, forbidden to eat of a tree, when I could be like God? I could be like the Creator, with eternal nature and complete knowledge of all things. The temptation comes with both carrot and stick. The carrot, you will be all-knowing. The stick, in the current state you're in, you lack. And you see that if you start questioning God's word, what the awful reality is, where do you stop? If God didn't say this or he didn't mean that, then can we ever trust anything he actually says? And if we don't trust anything that he actually said in his word, then is there any point in any of this? Is everything now up for question? What's the point in reading the word and studying the word and obeying the word? What's the point? If we can't trust who God is, what's the point? We'll come on to that in a moment in our application. But let me say this. The pandemic of the church is the lack of belief in the authority and finality of the Word of God. Let me just say that again. The pandemic of the church is the lack of belief in the authority and finality of the Word of God. And that pandemic started in Genesis 3, verse 1, with a simple doubting question. And so what are the consequences of such a choice? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to their eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
The way of rebellion puts immediate pleasure in front of the possible consequence. It was lust, pure and simple, that took a doubt and made it rebellion. Eve saw that the tree was, one, good, two, that it was for delight, and three, it should be desired. Obedience in the word of God was well and truly out of the window by this point. For lust had taken over. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world's. The desires of the flesh, oh, but it looks tasty. The desires of the eyes, I desire this one fruit. Pride and possession, I get to be like God. It's not from our Creator, but from the world. You see, there was no reason for Eve and Adam to sin. God had given them everything they could want, yet the choice was still always theirs. Adam and Eve chose to elevate themselves to a position of authority. They decided what was wise rather than submitting to God. I wonder if that's why we struggle with this word submission, because of Genesis 3. Eve took and ate. And then she turns to Adam, who took and ate. A doubt became lust. Lust became an action. And finally, an action became a pattern of disobedience. Do you see, the pattern was created. Not just one, but now two. Now, let me say this, and let me say this bluntly. There will be some men in this room who, in some form of misogynistic, joking manner, will point to the fact that it was not man that had failed, but in fact it was women. And in fact, it was all women's fault. And maybe they'll even point to 1 Timothy 2.14 and say, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And therefore, it is woman that is the problem. If this is your thought process, I'd be bold enough to say two things you are twisting scripture and misunderstanding what this 1 Timothy 2 says. And you have stooped to what we're going to look at next week, which is the pathetic blame game that we will learn about gets you nowhere. Here is the reality. Adam was not tempted. Instead, he willfully sinned. He willfully took of the fruit There was no debate, no question, no pause, no conversation, no thought process of what God had said to me. He said, hey, good fruit, thank you. There wasn't a split second where he thought about it. So if you're a man here thinking, do you know what? It's women that broke this world. Think again. How pathetic is that? Man couldn't even bring a conversation to the situation. And so what was the impact of both of them giving into a temptation and then willfully sinning in Adam? Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There's an immediate impact. They knew they were naked. Suddenly, their nakedness brought embarrassment and shame. Sin had entered their hearts, and sin will always bring two things, shame and guilt. And their rudimentary coverings were an attempt to hide parts of their bodies. And I want you to notice this. Notice they do not try to hide their arms, or their feet, or their hands. We're not reading about gloves, shoes, and a scarf here. But they're seeking to hide the most intimate parts of their bodies, 
What once brought joy and completeness together now is shrouded in guilt and shame. And to this day, sadly, it is still our bodies that dominate shame and guilt in this world. Just take a few aspects here. The insane rise of pornography, the ever-increasing instances of infidelity, and as mentioned last week, the utterly unbelievable confusion that our children will go through over their bodies and how they feel. What was once perfect is now sadly abused. Yet in God's mercy, (laughs) we're still able to enjoy what he has blessed creation with in a faithful marriage before him. But the impact was not just about guilt and shame. And just as a pre-warning, Gareth, this is going to go fast. (laughs) Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The action of disobedience brought sin into the world, and sin now tarnishes every person, and that sin brings death. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us is sinless. We are all guilty. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. All are sinners, all must pay a price, and that price is eternal death, eternal separation from God. Folks, that is what a doubting temptation brings when we give into it. But praise God, Romans 6.23 doesn't finish there. It goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God in his love and mercy doesn't leave us in a state of being dead in our sins. He gives a gift, and that gift is Jesus Christ. God's solution to our sin is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not die, but have everlasting life. The solution only comes through Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And all that is required, all that is required from us is to repent from our sins and place our faith in Jesus. Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Folks, that is the gospel, that we are dead in our sins, And then God sent Jesus, and through Jesus we can be alive and enjoy the blessings of the Creator God. Please tell your faces at the joy that this brings. We were where Adam and Eve were, willfully sinning, tempted and unable to go against that temptation, away from God, full of guilt and shame. And then God says, here is the solution. And more than just any old solution, this one's eternal. Let me boil it down into three very simple applications today. Number one, don't engage Satan. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, we're given the clear example of how we should respond to temptation. Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So when Satan comes knocking with that doubting question, with that desire to show who is right, with the temptation to twist the word of God, what are we to do? We're to declare with confidence and boldness and unshakable faith, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
if only Eve and Adam did this. And thousands of years later, we're still struggling to do this, are we not? Yeah, if you've been here for a little while, you know I've got a, a lead right foot. It has a tendency to not like signposts on a road. And I know that in that moment, I want to get to a destination faster than I really should. It's usually on the way to New Tribes Mission, because I'm usually late. I have to decide in that moment, will my life be a worship to the Lord my God? And will I say, be gone, Satan, I'm staying at 60 miles an hour. That's just one tiny little thing in our lives, isn't it? Second, trust the word of God. We read in Psalm 18, verse 30, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Not only is God's word always true, always perfect, always right, but it's a shield against temptations. So we're to trust it. We're to use it. We're to be a people who takes the word of God like a sword, the armor of God in the New Testament, and like a shield against temptation. And we're to walk boldly into the world, knowing that whatever comes, you're ready for the fight because you do not doubt the perfect word of God. Folks, if we would just do this, we wouldn't have problems in any church, in any part of the world. Because the word of God is where we stand. When did problems start? When the word of God began to twist in Genesis 3. Trust the word of God. Thirdly and finally, believe and be baptized. I started this sermon with a statement. There's always a choice. And so today, I present you with that choice. Will you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, who through the work on the cross can save you from your sin, setting you free from eternal death and into eternal life? The answer that can only ever come is either yes or no. It's not, where are you in your process of considering? It is, do you? Yes or no? It doesn't matter what age you are, what background you come from, which city you're born in, or whether you're a man or a woman, you have a choice to make, whether you believe or whether you won't. Will you choose Jesus? Will you believe in him? Will you give your life over to him? Now today, I want to be very clear. If your answer is yes, either for the first time or yes, because you have been right on this choice for your whole life, knowing that Christ is your Lord, then the Bible is very, very, very clear. We are to declare it and we are to be baptized. We're not to be embarrassed. We're not to feel shame. We're not to feel guilt. Why? Because they're markers of the fallen world that came through sin. We're to declare it to the world, I am all for Jesus because he is all for me. Friends, when we really do this, when we really grasp this in our lives, honestly, it's really not much that scares. There's really not much that brings fear. There's really not much worry and concern. 
Because if Christ is for us, and he has gone to prepare a place for us, then this moment now is that. It's a moment. And as Paul says, even if the worst would happen in your life, what is death? It is gain. Why? Because we don't go to a Genesis 3 world. We go to a Genesis 1 and 2 world. And that is our home. That is where we go to. So I want, I want to do something um, different. I don't, I don't normally do this. I don't normally go this route. Uh, if you will, please close your eyes. Don't worry, I'm not going to do some weird song and dance at the front or whatever. But if you will, just close your eyes. I'm going to ask two questions, and I'm going to ask you, with everyone's eyes closed, to, to declare by just simply raising your hand. There's no embarrassment here, no shame, no guilt. Like Adam, many of us have engaged with sin. We've stopped trusting the Word of God, and over the years, it just doesn't feel as glorious anymore to follow Christ. You might have been a Christian one year, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, but over that time, you've been engaging with Satan. You've started to doubt the Word of God, and really, you're questioning whether you are a true believer or not. Today, we've been told that the Word of God is perfect, the Word of God proves true, and He is a shield and a refuge to those who go to him. We're told that we're to say to Satan, be gone, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So if you've been in a place where you just, you haven't been there with God, you felt far away, you know somewhere deep down in you, you're saved, but that relationship just isn't what it used to be. And if you're there today, and you want that relationship back. If you want to go, be gone, Satan. I don't want a part of your world anymore. I want to trust the word of God for it's perfect and it proves true. I want to be a refuge in Christ. You want to believe. You want to stand on that baptism you had. You want to repent from those sins that just keep eking back at you. If you want to make that change in your own faith right now, simply please raise your hand so that I can pray for you. I won't pray for you by name. Simply raise your hand if you feel you're in a place where you want to rededicate back to God after a time of doubt or a time of sin. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Father, I want to pray for those who have just lifted their hands. Father, maybe doubts, maybe sin, maybe confusion, maybe anger. It may be just simple engagement with the sin of the serpent. Father, I pray right now you are a refuge to them. Father, I pray that you build them up in such confidence in your perfect and true word. Father, place in their arms the shield of your word, in their hand the sword of the word. Father, I pray that today they would fall on their knees before the cross of Christ and know with certainty that they mean something to you and that their life is important. Father, I pray that as they dedicate their lives once more to you, that that assurance of their salvation will well up in their hearts and in their minds. And from this day forward, they'll be confident in Christ Jesus. Please keep your eyes closed. I have a second question. That second question is this. 
there's always a choice. Do you or do you not believe in Jesus? This is what we're all about here at LBC. This is what church is about. This is what scripture is about. This is what me shouting through Genesis 3 is about, is trying to help people understand that there is only one way to be right with God, and that is to have faith in Jesus. Maybe today you've never made that step. Maybe today you've never come to God and said, do you know what? This is the moment. This is the moment where I repent from my sins and I come humbly before God and know his love and his mercy to save me from this crafty, evil serpent that is destroying my life. If you've never made that decision and right now you want to make that decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, again, with everybody's eyes closed, please simply raise your hand. Father, as we come as the church body before you now, we are humbled. Humbled because we engage with Satan. We engage with his trickery and his craftiness. And then we shout and rave at you because we say, where are you? You've not moved. You've not gone anywhere. You never moved in the Garden of Eden and you've not moved now. Father, we pray that we would indeed repent from that sin of engagement with Satan, that we would have confidence in your word and that today would be a marker in our lives, that today was the day we said, be gone, Satan, because this, this person, this family, this church, we worship God, we serve God, and there is no room for Satan. Father, your word is often glorious and joy-filled, and we've experienced that for six weeks. Father, today we realize the awfulness of sin. And as we do that, we have to come to you and say thank you for Jesus. Because if it wasn't for Jesus, we're gonna learn next week we would have been caught in the curse of sin for eternity. Father, on our day of rest, let us rest on that knowledge that we're not dead in sin, we're alive in Christ. Pray this in your name.